1: So you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com/slash history extra. Just go to indeed.com slash history extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed.
0: Welcome to the History Extra Podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The parents of Daniel Finkelstein were born into comfortable Jewish families in Germany and Poland. But their lives were turned upside down by the rise of Nazism and the onset of the Second World War. Targeted by two of the most destructive regimes in history, they were extraordinarily lucky to survive. In his new book, the journalist and conservative politician retraces his family history, offering an intensely personal view of the twin tyrannies of Nazism and Soviet communism. He spoke to Rob Attar.
2: Could we please begin with the story of your mother and her family? What kind of lives were they living before the Second World War broke out?
3: My mother, Miriam Wiener, was the daughter of one of the leaders of Germany's Jews in the 1920s and 30s. Alfred Wiener had come back from the First World War. He'd been a combatant. Lots of Jews felt enthusiastic, really, about the war on Germany's side because it meant combating the Russians, who were the... uh, authors of great pogroms. Uh, He'd come back feeling like a loyal German. Lots of people in the Jewish community expected to to have the sort of full emancipation that they'd been promised, the full social equality, that their position in society, having moved into the big cities and involved themselves in the arts and finance, really promised to them. And and they found what Alfred um, had predicted, really, which is that alongside this promise of equality was the reality of increased discrimination. And in 1919 he published a tract in which he said, unless we do something about the anti-Semitism that is growing in this country, we will report to our descendants of bestial violence and murder. And of course that is exactly what happened. He spent the rest of the 1920s as the General Secretary of one of the biggest communal bodies of Jews in Germany, something called the Centralverein, holding big meetings in lots of cities often broken up by the Nazis, where he was rebutting libels against the Jews, combating conspiracy theories. And then later in the 1920s, he came to the view that the real danger on the right wasn't just this general organisation of anti-Semites, but was actually Hitler and the Nazis. He found it difficult to persuade other Jews that, that he was right in that judgment, but he was able to persuade them to allow him to establish an archive and he began to collect all of the newspapers, pamphlets, speeches, statements. You know, later, many years later, when there was a rumor that Mengele after the war was in Argentina, nobody had a picture of him. Alfred was the only person that did. And the archive that he built up later became um vital in the Nuremberg trials and the Eichmann trials. But it only did that after a big disruption in the lives of both the archives and of the Wiener family. My grandfather, Alfred, and his wife, Greta, their older children's Ruth and Eva, and my mother, Miriam, all had to move to Holland in 1933 when Goering confronted Alfred in a meeting. Uh, at first, it was quite a genial exchange, but as Alfred was, you know, getting ready to leave, Goering said we know about the archive and you're going to have to destroy it. And they, the Nazis then sort of chased this archive around until they did in fact have to destroy it. And Al, Alfred decided it was safer for the family and for his work to be in Holland. So he went to Holland and began again with the archive that, we, that is now in Russell Square, the Wiener Holocaust Library. And my mother then in Holland had perfectly ordinary childhood in many ways. They were refugee family. Um, my grandfather and grandmother never lost the sense of being German, but it was... Uh, peaceful nice way to grow up and they enjoyed their school and their school friends in their clubs until we got to about 1938 Alfred had spent an awful lot of time away during that period suing the publishers of the Protocols of the Elders of Zion in Switzerland But the Dutch were increasingly concerned that his activities in Amsterdam, which were just above their flat, actually, in Amsterdam, that those activities were endangering their neutrality. And as a result of that, uh, the Dutch Prime Minister called in the chairman of the library and said, "Um, we know what you're doing, you have to stop doing this. And it was decided that they had to move the library again. And Alfred came to London. But here's the thing, he didn't move the children because they thought that Holland being a neutral country, was safer than being in London. And although it seems, you know, a mistake now at the time, was it a mistake? It's difficult to sell.
2: And so obviously once Nazi Germany has invaded the Netherlands, then your mother's family are in tremendous danger. What insights do you think your family story provides about the path of the Holocaust in the Netherlands?
3: Well, the interesting thing is that and, and I suppose I didn't really appreciate this uh, before I did it. Even the Nazis weren't really quite clear what they were doing. There was a huge amount of infighting in among the Nazis. Just to give you an example, the meeting with Goering that I mentioned, when my grandfather published the contents of that meeting in the newspaper leaving out the bit about the secret archive, but saying that Goering had promised not to touch a hair on the head of the Jewish community, providing it stayed loyal. Lots of other Nazis then piled onto Goering saying that he'd been soft. In other words, there was a lot of infighting, and some of that infighting reflected itself during the early period of Nazi occupation in Europe, with, you know, the people who were good at transporting people and the people who were good at holding people in prisons and the people who were good at arresting people all having an argument over what the best way to deal with the Jews was. The people who ran territories didn't want the Jews to be placed in their territory, but the people who wanted to expel Jews from the places they occupied wanted those Jews to be moved. So they all had a row until we reached the Wannsee Conference, which coordinated Nazi policy and settles on this policy of deportation, to the East. So I I hadn't sort of properly understood how much the policy which ended up in the final solution was the product really of a lot of failed alternatives because the Nazis had these two muddled ideas which my grandfather was constantly pointing out. On the one hand they thought the Jews were inferior. If they were among them they were, you know, making places dirty and crooked and reducing the uh, natural spirits of the German people and undermining German his true destiny and on the other hand they thought the jews were so clever and so cunning they couldn't be trusted anywhere and if they were left anywhere they would overwhelm the gentiles with their brilliance so uh, and these two contradictions they you know they they sort of fought over them and it led them ultimately to feel that the only solution was the final one which was just to get rid of the jews altogether and therefore the story of my mother and her sisters and my grandmother in holland is that increasingly a policy of restriction. My aunt loved playing tennis. She got a tennis racket before she could use it. The courts were shut. They loved swimming. They couldn't go swimming. They couldn't go to the cinema. They couldn't go to the markets. And ultimately, they get this yellow star, which they all have to pay for and so on. And there's a big argument in the Jewish community. Should they cooperate with this policy? And the yellow stars is quite a good example of this argument because some people follow the line that Hannah Arendt also developed in in a book that i i thought i was going to find to be a classic when i read it for this book i found i just found very annoying her idea was if the jews hadn't put these stars on people uh, the jewish council hadn't done that the nazis would have struggled to do it and they're quite right they would have done Uh, but what misses out from that argument is that during that period all the jews would have had to stay at home none of them would be able to even go shopping without putting themselves in huge danger so uh it wasn't as simple as you know choosing not to cooperate and then holding up the whole nazi war effort so in 1942 increasingly the people are beginning to towards the end of that year begin to be deported to a place called westerbork which was interestingly enough a camp that would have been built with jewish money to hold jews on behalf of the dutch uh, because the Dutch wanted to make sure that if the country was going to be full of refugees, somebody was paying for them. And it was the Jews who were going to pay for them. And the Jews were would be allowed to bring these people in, because they had nowhere else to go. Allowed to let these people in, providing they paid for them and put them up in accommodation, which is what Westerbork was. The Nazis take that over and use that as the place from which people will be sent to the East. And a critical feature of this book is that my mother was not sent to the East. In other words, sent to the gas chamber. She went somewhere else. She went to a place called Belsen, which we all know about as one of the worst atrocities of the Holocaust and of the of that sort of late war period. And we know about it because the British liberated it and found the camp in a horrendous condition. What people therefore don't know is that originally Belsen was designed as a place where people wouldn't be sent to the East and people were pleased to be sent to Belsen because it meant they wouldn't be sent to Auschwitz or Sobibor. It was set up by Himmler as a place for holding hostages. Just another example of this row inside the Nazi party and inside the various different organizations about how best to administer the Jewish problem as they saw it.
1: This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed.
4: That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra.
2: The reasons that your mother's family weren't sent to the East is really interesting because it actually involves a group of diplomats and activists based in Switzerland, doesn't it?
3: It's an extraordinary story, Rob. So they have a, a Paraguayan passport. And what's so extraordinary about this document, which saves my mother's life, is that she obviously knew she wasn't Paraguayan. So did the Paraguayans, fair enough. So did the Allies. But extraordinarily, so did the Germans. Everybody associated with this paragraph lines, the holders, the issuers, the forgers, and all the authorities that are being asked to recognise it know that although it's not a forged document, it is fraudulently issued. What happened was that a group of Polish diplomats, part of the Polish government in exile, that was based in Bern, hit upon the idea that a Swiss man who was the honorary consul to Paraguay would sell them, and ultimately they expanded this to a few of the other honorary consuls as well, but he was the main one, would sell them passports. He He sold them blanks, They could then fill them in, in the names of Jews that they'd identified, with pictures, and then they would go back to this man, Rudolf Hooghly, and Hooghly would stamp them all over in the right places. So everything of this passport was in order, except for the fact that it was falsely issued. These people were not eligible for these passports. But they did for everyone, because the fiction was convenient, certainly to the Nazis, and Ultimately, when once the Allies, which they only did very late in the war, hit upon the idea that saving Jews might be a good aspect of policy, it was convenient for them as well. At an early point, while the Nazis are willing to recognise these passports, they're only willing to recognise them as, as having exchange value if the Allies recognised them. And the Allies didn't want to recognise them because the State Department felt it would be undermining the integrity of the passport system, and also that they couldn't be sure that the people who had them wouldn't be spies. They thought that there was a spy school and people were being disguised as Jews with amazing plastic surgery. And then they would be using these passports in a sort of flood of spies that would then come into the United States. So they actually tried to persuade the Paraguayans to refuse to recognise these passports. Setting about, in other words, undoing the work that had been done by Alfred, who was who during this time, I should say, wasn't based with them in the camp. He was in America helping the war effort. Uh, he'd he'd uh, gone there, and then they'd been all captured in in Holland. They were they were undoing the work that had been done by the Wadosh Group, the group of diplomats who created these passports. And it was only very late in the war that they suddenly were persuaded, mainly by Henry Morgenthau, Roosevelt's Jewish Treasury Secretary that these passports had a value of saving lives. And once they acknowledged that, it was just enough time for one exchange involving 136 people in all the millions of people who died, and my mother was one of those.
2: It seems almost like a miraculous story, but but is it fair to say that that's not quite how you view it?
3: Yeah, I, I think it is. Look, I... I think it's like a lot of things are. Uh, It's both things. It's got its miraculous element. As people who will read the book will see, it's miraculous how they managed to get these passports. It's miraculous that they were one of the 136 people who were on it. It's associated with many miracles during the process of their release and exchange. But the other way of looking at it is it was quite scandalous, the narrow-mindedness of those people who you know in among the allies who were not taking this opportunity that were was being offered to them by himmler to exchange Jews i kind of understand it in the sense that they were worried that some of the people or equipment or money would be useful to the german war effort but i think it represents a misunderstanding as to what himmler and hitler were doing to the jews by this point and it's a and it's a difficult misunderstanding to comprehend because Anthony Eden, during this period, made a speech to the House of Commons in which he said exactly what was going on. And Anne Frank, in the annex, is writing in her diary that they heard on the British radio the people who were being sent to the East are being gassed. So they kind of knew that, but they didn't, I think, still comprehend quite its scale and never really did, even to after the war. And I've, I quote some documents that show that. So Yes, it was quite a, a miracle in some ways, but in other ways, it was outrageous.
2: And actually, speaking of Anne Frank, she does, or certainly her family crosses paths with your mother's family story, don't they, in various points?
3: Yes. So people possibly think of Anne Frank as a Dutch girl, and I thought of my mother as Dutch, but neither of them were really Dutch by origin. My mother had been born, as I said, in Berlin in 1933, and Anne Frank was born in Frankfurt. They were both, therefore, part of the German-Jewish refugee community, and they were part of the same synagogue, part of the same social class, and lived in roughly the same neighbourhood. And the strongest connection is that Ruth, my aunt, my mother's older sister, and Margot were in school together, and actually particularly Hebrew classes together. So uh, on one occasion, the rabbi gets the two of them to to witness a wedding that's, that's taking place in secrecy. And Ruth very much admired Margot, Margot's intellect. Um, she said she was slightly in awe of her, actually. Whereas Anne, I think, as my aunt said, she was astonished by the diaries because Anne, it always seemed to her just another kid in the class. But actually, I think it's obvious from reading all the accounts of Anne, she was quite a charismatic individual, actually
2: despite the fact that they were ultimately rescued and saved from Bergen-Belsen, your mother's family still had to endure a tremendous ordeal throughout the course of the Second World War. What do you think gave them the strength to go through with that?
3: Well, you know, so when, when somebody dies, I don't know if you've ever had this phrase where, you know, people say to you, uh, life goes on, and they say in a way, as if it's a choice, but actually it isn't a choice. It's it's just uh, it uh, it's a description of reality. You know, when, I remember that when my father eventually did die in, in 2011, and people were saying to me, "Well, life will go on," and I got up the next morning, and they were right; it did go on. And I so part of what happens in this story is they simply faced what they had to face. And they were fortunate to survive. But without any question, my book is about two. We'll come on to the other strong women who, for all of my grandfather, Alfred Wieners, was an amazing pioneer and one of, you know, and a great figure in many, many ways, a great man. But it is his wife, Greta's personal strength and her sacrifice that sees the girls through. And, you know, without wanting to, to spoil exactly what happens in the book, I think that, that, that shines out. Um, it was her and and the girls always thought of her afterwards as a very special person her humanity and her intellect but also her resilience she did find it very tough despite the fact that she had quite a lot of personal resilience that shines out and you can see that in the photograph so there's a photograph on the paraguayan passport that that was taken in Vesterborg, and that photograph shows how worn Greta has become if you contrast it with earlier photographs. So part of the resilience is just that you have to show resilience and part of it was uh, Greta was quite a special person.
2: And then as as you alluded to earlier there's an equally interesting story about your father's side of the family. So again if we could start by talking about what their situation was prior to 1939 and everything that that set off.
3: Absolutely so While you might think of my mother's story as an exceptional, extraordinary version of a story that you know quite well, my father's is a standard version of a story people don't know at all. He was born in a place called Lviv when he was born there. Before he was born, it had been called Lemberg, and now listeners will know it as Lviv. In other words, a town that was in the Austro-Hungarian Empire, then in Poland, and is now in Ukraine. And Mike, it was said to me the other day, your grandfather was well off. No, my grandfather was a rich man. And he had an ironwork metalworks business. And I discovered while I was researching it that his nickname was the Iron King, which gives you some idea of how he and his brother had expanded the business they'd inherited into this extraordinary business with steel mill and a pipe center, as well as the warehousing of metal equipment for railings and uh you know it often occurred to me that the rails that ultimately take my grandfather's as a gulag may have been rails that he'd actually sold himself in the first place my grandmother Lusha a Dolu, my grandfather built this big house on a hill in 1938 they move into this beautiful house shaped like a cruise liner it's modern it's progressive it's solid it represents their their wealth and their optimism and they imagine because the finkelsteins have lived there for hundreds of years in that city that they were going to go on living there for hundreds of years and they live in that place for a year because the molotov-ribbentrop pact divides poland into the germans come from one end when the russians invade from the other end the first reaction of some poles was they would come to save us from the nazis in fact they were in alliance with the nazis and they had come to take their part of the deal their end of the deal And they then set about trying to destroy the elite of Poland. And when I say elite, what the Nazis meant by elite, uh, everybody who was Jewish, some of whom happened to be shopkeepers, and the Soviets... Meant by that, people who happened to be shopkeepers, some of whom happen to be Jews. And they mean by elite, everybody who was a teacher, everybody who'd been in the army, anybody who had religious practice, anybody who was in touch with a philatelist or, or spoke Esperanto, anyone with any international connection at all. And all of those people, uh, they regard as an elite and they began to arrest them, starting with people like my grandfather, who were wealthy, who been on the city council, who was involved in the synagogue who was well-known locally, and he was accused of strengthening the might of capitalist Poland, which he most definitely was guilty of doing. He ends up being sentenced eight years in the Gulag as an antisocial element. His family, uh, my grandmother, goes to uh, see the, sort of, the 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 Soviet authorities after he's been, he's sort of disappeared. They said he was taking him for questioning. He disappears. And she says, "You know, will you tell me where they've you've taken him?" And they say, uh, "Absolutely, um, come back in four days, and we'll tell you exactly what's happened to them, uh, to all to him, and all the other people we've taken in for questioning." And after three days, they arrest all of their families. What, turned, what was tens of thousands of people on that evening on the 13th of April 1940, but was hundreds of thousands of people overall. And they take my father and my grandmother on a three-week ride through the Soviet Union. They end up in Kazakhstan on the border of Siberia and are put to work as slave labourers in a Soviet collective farm.
2: Again, this was another horrendous experience for part of your family. And again, you sort of alluded to earlier, do you think a large part of the fact that your um, father and grandmother survived was down to the strength of your grandmother?
3: Yeah, I do. when, When I was a child, my grandmother, granny was incredibly indulgent to her grandchildren and very loyal. But I remember once canvassing ra- in the roads around her house. And one of the canvassers came to me and said, Danny, um, we've just come across this woman who won't vote for our candidate because she's got a stupid haircut, This is what the woman said. And I immediately knew it was Granny because... That, that was just how she was she was very robust individual and this robustness was vital in saving their lives but there was another thing my father always put an emphasis on the practical things that help keep them alive and one of those was that my great-aunt dorothea my great-uncle wilhelm great-uncle Zimek, they were living in lviv still in in what had now becomes soviet lviv and they were able to send food Because the one thing that distinguished people who were sent to collective farms from people who'd been sent to the Gulag is they weren't actually prisoners and they could receive mail. And so, as you can imagine, quite a lot of this food never arrived. They sent dozens and dozens of packages and much of it didn't get there. But that bit that did get there saved their life. My grandmother later called this farm an island of hunger and death. And during the winter, that winter, they were living in a dung shack. They'd built themselves, and it was below freezing inside. And all they had to eat was uncooked, because they couldn't cook anything, because they had no fuel, uncooked goods that had been sent to be shared between them and the people who who were in this dung shack with them. There were five of them in there. And that just about kept them together. And my grandmother, and this is, I think, extraordinary, you know, she went out and got the water in this freezing area and then she would come back and she would teach my father English and uh, other languages. She deepened his knowledge of German. She taught him Schiller and the Iliad and the Odyssey. Quite extraordinary. And,
2: And so there's another extraordinary twist in the tale is that Operation Barbarossa, which for so many millions of people meant death and destruction, actually meant a chance to survive for your father.
3: Absolutely. Look, when when Operation Barbarossa happens, for Zimek, for Dorothea, for Wilhelm, it is a disaster because they live in Lviv and anyone who's read East West Street with by Philippe Sands knows what then happens when the Nazis invade that part of, of what is, by that point, the Soviet Union, uh, but was Poland and it's a disaster for them. But the Poles that were already in the Soviet Union were amnestied by Stalin and they always resented the fact they were amnestied because they said pointed out they'd done nothing wrong in the first place but Stalin wasn't going to admit that so he amnesties them and the families are able to reunite and also to do this to join something called the Anders army the soviets had killed the great leaders of the polish army and uh, you know obviously a one of the great war crimes but at that point they hadn't admitted to it they had one general that they had. they had a few more than this but they had one general in particular that they hadn't killed because he'd not been with the main group he'd been injured a man called uh, wladyslaw anders and anders was in hospi- was in hospital and then in the lubyanka and anders one day gets a visit from beria and beria comes to say to him we're going to let you go And I mean, this comes obviously as a complete surprise. And we're going to let you go. And we are going to put you in charge of an army. And they then release Anders, who sort of staggers out of his cell, barely able to walk, without any shoes. And they give him his case, which is being carried by a Soviet officer, which turns out to be someone else's case, actually, and contains somebody else's swimming trunks. And then they put him in this car and drive him off. And this bewildering turn of events makes him into the head of something which became known as the Anders' army.
2: And this kind of change of approach from the Soviet Union now that they're allied with Britain and the poles are amnestied, obviously that's not exactly what the correct term for it. That also meant that your grandfather was able to be free from the Gulag as well.
3: Yes. So part of the book is um, what happens to to Dolu, and um, you know readers can can discover what happens to him in his path, but his period in the Gulag, I think. Of all of the individuals in this who suffer in different ways, you know, Alfred who suffers his exile, Greta, and the girls who suffer in Belsen, with the exception of my great-aunt Trudy and, and those people who were killed outright, I think the worst experience is that of Dolu. And what happens in the Gulag pretty surely does kill him, actually, even if it didn't kill him immediately. His experience at the age of 50 of having to pull logs from the forest to the water but anyone who you know who can who reads about the gulag experience will see that most people spiral to their death what helps dolu is that he uh, is able to count as well as the fact that he can speak russian and most of the criminals in the camp were illiterate and even those people who were political prisoners were innumerate his ability to be both literate and numerate meant that he could get a desk job and this is ultimately what means he doesn't starve and and sort of die of weakness in the way that many of his other fellow prisoners do die.
2: And there was one really interesting detail in your book where you uh, reproduce a British diplomatic telegram and they talk very casually about huge numbers of Polish people potentially dying in the Soviet Union. Do you think that speaks to a kind of coldness on the British part around the victims of Stalin at this time?
3: Yes, it does. I mean, actually, so it is... Um, the incident you're talking about is that when Anders gets his army together, they decide they want to get out of the Soviet Union. Stalin doesn't want to feed them all, but what he'd like to do is keep half of them to fight with his army, let the other half go. He doesn't... The one thing he doesn't want to do is let everyone go. But when he's finally, for various reasons... Does decide that that's the best policy. He did, they're they're asking him pesky questions about what he did in with the Cattian officers, and he doesn't want to answer them. When he finally decides this, the British don't really want to have them, and the reason given this diplomatic exchange from the Ministry in Cairo, which was a sort of full blown Ministry, is Stalin won't mind them starving to death. We'll have to feed them because it'd be too embarrassing for us to do that so it's probably better to hold them up with stalin for as long as possible and then someone else says i'm not sure you should have put that down in writing those are not exact quotes but they're pretty close to it that is pretty extraordinary exchange then they one of them says i think th- this will read oddly to future historians which being one it did so i think what's interesting about that exchange and it also was true of the state department's attitude to the passports and i i said this only yesterday actually to to a friend of mine who's a government minister What it was was putting a kind of strict construction above the kind of broad and generous view about human life and reactions. But I'll I'll give you um, an example of that, which I think isn't just the easy one. I remember that when I was helping David Cameron work on his memoirs, I happened to come to see him in his flat. I used to go every month and talk to him, and he would then talk about what he'd been doing for the previous couple of weeks or three weeks. And he was just at the point of having to make a decision about what to do in Libya. And lots of people were saying, don't act unless you've got an exit strategy. And he said to me, no, the thing is, Danny, uh, we don't have an exit strategy. But if I don't do anything right now, these people are going to die, and I think I'm going to have to act. And I think he was right actually but obviously you know the counter case to that is I should have had an exit strategy and this is the same the same sort of thing you see constantly in the war which is was it the right thing to do to undermine the passport system it might help you know 136 people like saving my mother's life but uh, there are consequences for it down the road in terms of the overall impact on the system and I think this is actually it's a more difficult decision than I'm making it sound when I read the information about my mother's story, I can see that that was a real dilemma, whether or not you decided to help Himmler by giving him what Himmler wanted uh, in exchange for the Jews. Did you accept this hostage exchange? But if you didn't, it was, you know, you were basically letting people letting people die. It, these are very difficult uh, decisions, but I think they, they've rarely been as sort of crassly put as they were in that particular exchange.
2: Now... Both your parents eventually make it to Britain and they have long and complicated stories. But I wonder if you could just briefly explain how they both come over here
3: yes my mother was able to come over here because my grandfather became a british citizen he he goes to the united states during the during the second world war helps the state department and the foreign office with various propaganda duties um ranging from providing them with information for allied uh, leaflet raids through to monitoring american public opinion and he has to come back to this country because at the end of the war the government withdraws all the money that it's giving to the Wiener Library, to its archive, and he thinks the archive's going to collapse, he's going to lose his job, but more importantly he's going to lose this archive of papers that he regarded as still of vital importance, which indeed it proved during the Nuremberg trials. So he comes to this country and he isn't able to negotiate much, but the one thing that he does negotiate is that his period in the United States will count towards British citizenship. So he becomes a British citizen. And my, my mother, who's gone from Belson in this exchange to Switzerland and from Switzerland to the United States, is able to come from the United States to London in 1947 and also become a British citizen. On the other side of the family, the story is different. At Yalta, uh, what had been discussed at Tehran is confirmed and the uh, decision is made that Lvov will be in the Soviet sphere of interest and it will also, also be, strictly speaking, in the Soviet Union. Poland, it's obvious, despite all of the assurances that Churchill tried to get, they get nothing but words from Stalin. It's obvious that Poland's going to be, become a communist-dominated state. And for for Dolo, this meant going back to Lwów would mean certain arrest and return to the Gulag, and going back to Poland wouldn't be much better. So they can't really do that, and they don't really know what to do. Anders is infuriated by this decision. They have Him and Churchill have a stand-up row, but ultimately Churchill feels guilty enough that he agrees to create the Polish Resettlement court. And the result of that is my grandfather, being a Polish officer in the Free Army, is allowed to join the Polish Resettlement Corps. And then he arrives in Southampton Docks in August 1947. This rich man who'd uh, had lost his fortune completely. And they, and they come and live first in Golders Green and then in Hendon Central.
2: And so after the war, your parents build new lives in Britain. But how far would you say their experiences in those years shaped the rest of their lives?
3: They were very determined to look to the future and not to allow what had happened in the war to destroy their lives. Look, it did reshape it. My father, you know, was the only son of a very wealthy man who was destined to run a big business who would doubtless with his kind of scientific bent of mind, even if he wasn't like a hugely business orientated person, become leader of that enterprise instead of which he became a professor in a british university led a completely different life but this is a book with a happy ending my parents met each other my father and mother always felt they were fated to do that even though they came from these two different completely different stories and they loved each other very much had a marriage that lasted for 54 years never moved very far always got on extremely well with their children with each other and all the relatives so in that way they, they had an incredibly happy ending to this very difficult story it undoubtedly has shaped our life in lots of ways all three of my mother's children are involved in public life in one form or another and that is partly because how can you believe that politics don't matter you know when politics killed our relatives and stole our property and exiled my family and removed their citizenship and confiscated every sofa coffee cup and teaspoon that we possessed and drove us across the world. Of course, politics matters, and it's had an impact on... My, my father was all, particularly was very strong on issues uh, like the maintenance of the rule of law, and my mother was always very strong on having a sense of proportion. So some people see Hitler and Stalin and everything, whereas she felt never have an argument with a neighbour over a hedge, never quit the synagogue council, you know, never disapprove of one of your children's partners. None of these things are worth falling out over. And that made them exceptional people to be around.
2: As you were growing up, how aware were you of the extraordinary experiences your parents had had in the war?
3: My mum and dad always spoke about it. So interestingly, People didn't speak to either of them about their story at first, and my mother, for many years, and I remember one time she she told me she was giving a talk at the synagogue to the to the Hebrew classes, and did I think they'd be interested in the fact that she'd known Anne Frank, which I said, even at that point, I had enough journalistic nails to I was in my teens to say that I thought they probably would be. And she then began to talk to lots of schools, and she always talked to us, no one ever asked my father to tell his story. I'm sure he'd happily done so. But no one was interested in knowing about Stalin's crimes and the Katyn massacres and um, the deportation he faced. So he never was asked um, to do any of these things. You know, my mother ended up talking in Downing Street. She was on the radio. She, she met Hilda Speer, Albert Speer's daughter. You know, she talked to David Cameron about it. She, 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 did, she did really participate in quite a lot of educational events and people, my dad just did not because the Soviets were on the winning side and nobody was interested in what they'd done. But as children, we they were always very open to us. Had it not been for the fact that the Association of Jewish Refugees has a project of taking the testimony of refugees it might have been much more difficult for me to turn that childhood knowledge into a book so what I think distinguishes my own position from that of many many of my contemporaries lots of them know that their parents were involved in these horrendous events but they don't know the details whereas I was fortunate that I you know I would say to people, if you want to write a book like this, then the first thing you have to do is ensure that your grandfather is one of the great archivists of the 20th century, and that'll help. And so both the spirit and the reality of what he did has helped me a lot with what I've done in this book.
2: You just alluded in, in that last answer to the fact that there perhaps hasn't been as much interest in the crimes of the Soviet Union as there has been in what Nazi Germany did. But, but is it fair to say that your parents would have seen a lot of equivalences in their experiences?
3: Absolutely. So when you when you learn about, it, you can see that what the the Nazis did to my great aunt Trudy and to cousin Fritz and to great uncle Jan, this this factory of murder. They go to Sobibor. The life in Sobibor is three hours. They're processed effectively through to certain death. That was different from what the Soviets did. There was a difference. The Soviets essentially sent my grandfather to a certain death but they were going to work him to death rather than gas him and whenever you ask which of those was worse were they different my mother would always say it wasn't it's not a competition and i think that's true i think it is one of the reasons why the fascination with the nazis uh, is different from the fascination with the soviets just because there is something astonishing and appalling about the way that the Nazis treated people and it was different but in many respects I think I said earlier you know if you look for the person in the group of individuals who who was treated worse and whose experiences were worse it was dolu in the in the gulag uh, those experiences were horrendous and they were caused by a total lack of interest in human life, the treating of human beings as if they were mere units in some great project, which was a similarity between Nazis and communists. And my parents absolutely did see it like that. So indeed, my mother, as I realised, had a horrible experience in the train that took her from Amsterdam to Westerbork, where they nearly, you know, effectively cooked to death, but, uh, but would always tell that story, followed by the fact that my father had spent three and a half weeks on a train to Kazakhstan, Siberia. So I think they did see it, yeah, as part of one story, that the rise of totalitarianism against the liberal capitalism and the rule of law.
2: And then how much have these kind of family traumas shaped your own political approach and your political career?
3: Yeah, so... I think it's probably had four impacts right the first is that while writing this book it has been impossible to view my old political arguments and rivalries in the same way it's simply not possible to write this book and then still think the row, the, the differences of opinion I might retain with Rachel Reeves of a central matters of world affairs because they're simply not you know we share a common abhorrence of this sort of thing and we would share a determination and it not be allowed to happen again. And when those things become central to your political awareness, they then become central to your political rivalry. So, definitely, writing this book has, has emphasised that, and possibly something that I've always, you know, something I've always probably known, but certainly emphasised it. Secondly, it certainly also brings in an allied thing, a sense of proportion, but also a sense of belief in moderation and stability, which are values which people don't necessarily put much store by. I I believe the kind of great abstract sweeping ideas of history are deeply flawed and can be incredibly damaging to human beings. This has always been a part of my politics, and I think it was the experience of my parents that brought it there thirdly you cannot study this without thinking that that the refugee crisis is a crisis for everybody that involves human beings and needs to be treated in a humane way can only be solved at an international level and fourth and it's interesting to me that while people immediately intuit that uh, it will have an impact on my view of refugees and often say you know. How can you not be humane to refugees when you've had your experience, but never seem to reflect that it might also lead you to be a liberal internationalist uh, in foreign and defence policy? Something that, uh, in other words, I find it very hard to accept the argument, even when it's practical. Well, we shouldn't do anything about these problems in other countries. We should just let whoever's the dictator of this country kill the people there and not do anything about it. And their response to me is, well, it's not practical to do anything about it. But that's exactly the argument they wouldn't accept on the refugee question. So I think these two things are allied together because my grandfather was a refugee, but he didn't want to be one. He'd have much rather uh, lived in Germany. And he indeed starts arguing in the 1920s and 30s, when are people going to wake up and see what these people are doing and try and stop them? That was Daniel
0: Finkelstein. Daniel Finkelstein. His book, Hitler, Stalin, Mum and Dad, A Family Memoir of Miraculous Survival, is out now published by William Collins. And you can find out more about the Wiener Holocaust Library, including their current exhibitions, at wienerholocaustlibrary.org. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Daniel Kramer Arden.